It's time to call out WikiLeaks for what it really is, a non-state hostile intelligence service often abetted by state actors like Russia. We know this because Assange and his ilk make common cause with dictators today. Yes, they try unsuccessfully to cloak themselves and their actions in the language of liberty and, language of liberty and privacy, but in reality, they champion nothing but their own celebrity. Their currency is clickbait, their moral compass non-existent, their mission, personal self-aggrandizement through destruction of Western values. That was then CIA Director Mike Pompeo speaking before a Washington think tank in April 2017, depicting WikiLeaks as a grave threat to American national security. I, like many in the audience that day, assumed that Pompeo's description of WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence service was a grabby rhetorical talking point. But as my Yahoo News colleagues Zach Dorfman and Sean Naylor and I reported this weekend, Pompeo's branding opened the door for the CIA to plan all sorts of extreme measures to dismantle the organization, including a snatch operation to kidnap the group's leader, Julian Assange, then holed up inside the Ecuadorian embassy in London, and possibly even to assassinate him. And later, when officials in Washington picked up reports that Russian operatives might be conspiring to break Assange out of the embassy and spirit him away to Moscow, the CIA even began planning for a gun battle on the streets of London. What exactly did the CIA's active measures targeting Assange add up to? And what impact might these revelations have on the U.S. Justice Department's ongoing efforts to extradite Assange from the United Kingdom and put him on trial for violations of the Espionage Act in a U.S. courtroom? We'll discuss with Zach Dorfman of Yahoo on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And we are joined by the aforementioned Zach Dorfman. Zach, welcome back to Skullduggery. So great to be here, guys. Thank you. So uh, as we were working on this story, uh, Zach, I fully expected it was going to get some attention anytime you talk about the CIA possibly kidnapping or even assassinating somebody. It's going to raise a few eyebrows. But I got to say, I was pretty blown away by uh, the response we were getting to this yesterday, uh, Sunday, on Twitter. I mean, this really seemed to have touched a lot of buttons with a lot of people, raised a lot of very serious issues, and um, is uh, getting talked about quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I was also surprised in a way, but then again, I think that WikiLeaks and Assange um, and the period around Trump's election in 2017 are still such, there's so many live issues from that time and so many unresolved tensions from within the Trump administration. And this story really brings one of those to light, which is the, the tensions within the administration about how to deal with an organization like WikiLeaks, which 
um, on the one hand, you know, uh, assisted through its release of the Democratic Party emails in Trump's reelection in a very substantive way. And then very soon after, in early 2017, released a massive tranche of highly classified files from the CIA's hacking division, which sent the agency into apoplexy. And so um, in- and, and, and Pompeo in particular. Yes, and Pompeo in particular, and CIA Director Pompeo in particular. Zach, let's drill down into that a little yeah. bit, because, you know, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange have been, you know, a thorn in the side of the U.S. government for quite some time. Um, and, you know, I think people in the national security uh, world, uh, generally speaking, think that uh, that there are national security implications of what they've done. But we, we went from an Obama administration that didn't even want to indict Julian Assange to a Trump administration that was contemplating assassinating Julian Assange. So part of that has to do with what you just alluded to, which which is the leak of these highly classified and very sensitive hacking tools known as Vault 7. So tell us about Vault 7 and why you think the Trump administration and then CIA Director Pompeo in particular uh, began to see blood that led him to, at the very least, seriously considering um, these very extreme uh, measures? I mean, I think that's a great question, Dan. That's something that, you know, I and we have thought a lot about while reporting this story out. And, and one thing that I think kind of escapes attention, or just to, to reframe some of these events a little bit in 2016 and 2017, you know, the, the DNC and DCCC hacking What's interesting about that is that, you know, you could make an argument that it was an attack on American democracy. It was certainly a kind of epochal event in kind of recent uh, American political history. But WikiLeaks's release of those emails and Russian intelligence's hacking of those emails, those were not government emails. Right, that was a. Those are political party emails. It was not an attack. It was an attack on American democracy, arguably. I think very strongly, arguably, but not necessarily a massive leak of government documents of classified documents. Of course, WikiLeaks had featured uh, leaks of classified documents before. State Department. Two hundred and fifty thousand State yeah. Department cables, yeah. for example. Yeah, yeah, just for example, yeah. But Vault Seven was an example of you know a unprecedented literally the largest leak in the history the uh, the largest unauthorized disclosure in the history of the CIA you know you have its offensive cyber operations division its hacking division loses this massive tranche of its internal documents and exploits and all of a sudden in March 2017 um, just a few short months after Donald Trump is elected, um, and actually is t um, it takes takes office, these start appearing on the WikiLeaks site. And you have a new director in Pompeo, CIA director in Pompeo, who, you know, while he tweeted and then later deleted an email that pointed to WikiLeaks's Democratic Party emails, he views this as, I, I think, from from our conversations with sources as almost like a terrible personal embarrassment on his new directorship and also an institutional embarrassment on CIA. So you have 
that aspect of it. And of course, Pompeo is a traditional, very hawkish, very conservative Republican figure. So you have that with Pompeo. And then you have at CIA, a lot of people who were, you know, incandescent already about WikiLeaks's relationship with Russian intelligence services in that alleged GRU operatives gave Assange those emails, those Democratic Party emails. So you already have this base at CIA of people who are who are more than willing to go after WikiLeaks if they are given a longer leash to do so. And then in, in Pompeii, you have a director who is now personally invested in making sure that he proves his mettle. So, Zach, let's just walk through exactly what we know about what the CIA was planning and what they actually did, because, you know, obviously the headlines of this piece are the extreme measures that the CIA was contemplating, but they actually also were doing some pretty aggressive stuff as well. So Pompeo makes this declaration, non-state hostile intelligence service, which really opened the door, as I said in the introduction, for them to do, as we reported, offensive counterintelligence activities, the kind of stuff that they would do against hostile intelligence services, the Iranians, the Russians, the Chinese. And they could do them without a presidential finding, if it's an intelligence service, and they do not need to brief the intelligence committees on the Hill. So basically they can do it on their own. And that and that's when they start these really aggressive measures. So walk us through exactly what it is they were planning and what they actually did. Yeah. So, you know, as, as you mentioned, the most extreme things were not carried out. There were cooler heads that prevailed. The In part the, because the, of objections from Trump White House lawyers. Yes, exactly. So there there was a big internal debate within the Trump national security bureaucracy, including the top legal official at the National Security Council, John Eisenberg, who sources told us was very, very worried about the kinds of things that Pompeo was proposing vis-a-vis WikiLeaks, and particularly the proposals to kidnap or render Assange from the Ecuadorian embassy. So, you know, there were different variations of this proposal, but they went from like an actual rendition, like a black bag job. You break into the embassy, you throw a bag over the guy's head, you throw him in a car, you put him on a plane, and eventually you bring him back to the U.S. Um, a less extreme version of it was maybe you break into the embassy, you throw a bag over his head, and then you turn him over to the British, and then you then you actually initiate the extradition process. But let me just interrupt. At, at the point, one, and this is a crucial point, at the time that they're first planning such snatch operations, kidnapping, there wasn't an indictment of Julian Assange in the United States. So therefore, where would they take him? On what basis would they hold him? I mean, this, uh, yeah, this is a critical, critical point because there were worries, there were general worries about illegality, right? I mean, it, you know, just grabbing a guy from a sovereign diplomatic facility um, and then bringing him, kidnapping and bringing him back to the US. Now, that's problematic in and of itself. But when Eisenberg and others in the White House realized that there was no indictment of Assange and they were, they were considering doing this without any legal framework in place, they were 
you know, that was worries on top of worries. And that really set them off. And in fact, what happened was, you know, Eisenberg and others in the White House sent messages to the Department of Justice, which was, you got to hurry up and indict this guy if you can, because we may, sh we may shake the house and bring him out and bring him back to the states. And if we do, we need to make sure there's an indictment in place. So, I mean, I think that's an important kind of subplot in the story, which is that basically this covert action-like campaign that was being proposed by the CIA that you know included things like rendition had a direct effect and pressure on the push to actually prosecute Assange. And you had some very, very conservative prosecutors, very aggressive prosecutors like you know, like then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who was more than happy to indict Assange. But even they did not want something like this to go on because they thought this is going to totally blow up our case against this guy. So, um, so let's go back to okay. Those were those were basically the the abduction operation was was scrapped uh, because of the objections of people like Eisenberg. But they also did do stuff to yes. for surveillance, monitoring, intercepting communications. Talk about that. Yes. Um, so as you mentioned, the non-state hostile intelligence service designation, it allowed them to employ offensive counterintelligence measures against them, which again, as you said, it's the kind of things that the CIA does against the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese, all very kind of core responsibilities for a spy service. But doing that against an outlet that has made claims that it's a, it's a media organization is very, very unusual. And some of these things included intensive spying on WikiLeaks uh, members, not just Assange, uh, WikiLeaks associates and members in Europe. Uh, we had um, former US intelligence and national security officials say, we were tracking where they were going, who they were meeting with, what channels they were talking on, who they were talking to, we were told that Assange was heavily surveilled within the embassy. There was audio and video footage of Assange. And then there was things that offensive counterintelligence allows you to do, which are disruptive measures. So that's proposals like sowing discord by introducing derogatory information between members to try to get them to fight all the time, or even breaking into WikiLeaks members' homes in Europe to try to take back caches of data related to the Vault 7 releases. And we were told that some of these actions were carried out. The one thing that, that was not done, you guys report, is uh, an effort to infiltrate WikiLeaks with actual human spies, right? Because uh, they were so paranoid, the CIA didn't think that would be feasible. That's is that correct. Right? They, they said that they were very security conscious. And so they, CIA believed that it would be very difficult to just like have a guy all of a sudden approach WikiLeaks and say, hey, I want to be a volunteer or something like that. Yeah. One thing we have not spoken about, uh, an important part of the narrative is that the U.S. intelligence community believed that they had good intel that suggested that the Russians were getting ready to do their own snatch operation, an exfiltration, as it's called, to get Assange out of the embassy and safe passage to Russia, which would have been a huge propaganda coup for Putin. Tell us that part of the story. Yeah, I mean, this is a really another wild subplot, which is that by late 2017, the U.S. US intelligence officials had picked up 
that information that they believed that the Russians were planning this exfiltration. There were some data that showed that, you know, they the Ecuadorians had made Assange first a citizen of Ecuador, and then a and then actually had made him a diplomat in the Ecuadorian foreign ministry. And there was a plan to assign him to the uh, Ecuador's embassy in Moscow, which would have allowed him to transit from London, in theory, to Moscow safely because there's international legal prohibitions on preventing diplomats from going to their place of assignment. I should note that uh, Assange's representatives have strenuously denied that Assange knew anything about this plan by the Ecuadorians, but it was taken very, very seriously by US intelligence officials. And their worries were exacerbated when they saw what they believed were Russian intelligence operatives practicing what's known as a starburst maneuver outside of the Ecuadorian embassy. A starburst maneuver is something where a bunch of spies scatter simultaneously in a bunch of different directions to lose tails from counter spies, right? You know, if you're if you're a Russian spy and you're on in on US soil and you're trying to lose FBI counterintelligence, what you'll do sometimes is six cars will go in six different directions simultaneously. So, you know, if there's not enough coverage, one car gets through. So US intelligence believed, well, this is what they're gonna do with Assange. They're gonna put a bunch of cars in front of the embassy. He's gonna jump out at a, at a predetermined time and then they're gonna speed him potentially to an airstrip and try to get him to Russia. And US intelligence said, there's no way this is gonna happen. We're not gonna let this guy get to Russia under any circumstance. And they started talking about all the different kinds of things that they might do to interdict Assange, including with the British. So it, the UK was aware of these plans some of these things involved, like if he gets into a car, they're going to facilitate a car crash. They're literally going to crash a bunch of cars into Assange. They're going to rip him out of a diplomatic vehicle, potentially. And this, again, set off a lot of worries at the NSC because they said, well, wait a second. You can't just like you can't just smash into this guy's car, especially if he's in a Russian diplomatic vehicle and then grab him. That's also kind of like in downtown <laughs> London, London, right? It's like another form of kidnapping. Right. And um they said, well, there might be gun battles. The Brits, you know, the U.S. and the Brits got together and the Brits, I guess, said, well, if there's going to be gun battles, we're going to be the ones doing the shooting. And then there was also questions of if he gets to the airport, you know, maybe we'll shoot out the tires on the plane. We might hover helicopters over the plane. Uh, there was all kinds of very Jason Bourne-esque crazy scenarios that were being thrown around. And it didn't come to pass, but it was... It was quite seriously discussed at the NSC and then between UK and US officials. So I really want to focus uh, to a certain degree on the designation of WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence agency, because one of the things that your article does, which I think is really fascinating, is kind of lay out a chronology of kind of evolving assessments of WikiLeaks. And, I, you know, my first question is, Leaving aside how, how strange it is, I think this is possibly the first time that the CIA has ever done anything like this that we know of. Is it fair to say that WikiLeaks was a non-state hostile intelligence agency? I think that it is historically, I mean, I think it's historically very far outside the bounds of what the CIA's offensive counterintelligence powers are supposed to be used for. 
they have been used for non-state entities before. They've been used for terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and uh, Hezbollah. In fall of 2017, CIA Director Pompeo was at a conference at the University of Texas at Austin, and he was asked by his interviewer, who was himself a former senior CIA official, about this talk of Pompeo's about WikiLeaks being a non-state hostile intelligence service. And Pompeo said, well, you know, there are other examples of this throughout history. And, you know, we've, we've been targeting non-state entities. And then he just said, you know, like Hezbollah. And I don't think, I think it's quite clear that no matter what you think of WikiLeaks, there is uh, an ocean of difference between an organization like WikiLeaks and a sophisticated, terrorist group like Hezbollah, which has uh, deep, deep connections to um, Iranian intelligence. I think we were going in the same direction, which is, is that one of the things that has happened with this designation, and one of the things I'm curious about is whether or not it has kind of stood up within the CIA kind of legal community over time, and also the, the extent to which it begins to kind of bleed into or butt up against kind of legitimate journalism and le legitimate journalistic operations and the kind of the risk that this designation poses, not just to WikiLeaks, but literally to any reporter operating in. Well, and in fact, yeah. I'm sorry to jump in here, but I mean, I think you have an example of that in this very story, this kind of slippery slope that Victoria is talking about because of the designation of two journalists, one documentary maker and Glenn Greenwald, who is obviously has been close to WikiLeaks and has been involved in controversial national security reporting as, quote, information brokers and not journalists. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an important point, too, which is that, you know, there there was an attempt in the Obama years that was pushed back. Uh, the Obama White House pushed back on this pretty strenuously, but there was an attempt by senior U.S. intelligence officials in the Obama era to recategorize Greenwald and Poitras as quote-unquote information brokers. This idea was that they were not doing legitimate journalism anymore, and therefore they might be subject to counterintelligence investigations for spying and or prosecution. Because if you take away those journalist protections, all of a sudden there was this idea that, well, if we can prove that they're somehow acting in concert with a foreign adversary, then we might be able to do more um, against them in the intelligence and prosecutorial realm. The Obama folks were, were very the Obama folks were very worried about this for precisely those reasons, which was that there was a real slippery slope issue. And you just, you know, today you're talking about this edge case, and that's that's WikiLeaks, you know, and then you go one ring closer and you're talking about Poitras or Greenwald. And then I don't know, maybe the next day you're talking about Politico or Yahoo News. And it's just, and that I think is a real worry about the ability for an organization like CIA to just internally designate an organization that claims to be a media organization as something that's a hostile intelligence service. And so there's just, you know, there's a lot of worries there. Yeah. What are the, I mean, if I just, just to follow up, because one of the interesting things is, is that it seems like First of all, the reason we know or have an idea that it was designated as a non-state hostile intelligence agency is because Pompeo actually said it out loud. But we, we don't know really kind of whether or not there are other organizations that may have been so designated, do we? Uh, and we don't know kind of what sort of standard of review or, or, or oversight there is of these sort of designations. We do not. And that is a real worry. I mean, I think that 
you know, we had a, a former senior counterintelligence official talk about this period and say, well, you know, there was a lot of discussion about can we say that WikiLeaks is a Russian asset? Well, actually, we don't have enough evidence to say that. So maybe we reconfigure this to say, well, they're a non-state hostile intelligence agency, because if we can't prove that they're a Russian asset, we can't do certain things against them in terms of our collection and disruption activities. But if we just say, well, actually, they're a non-state hostile intelligence service of their own, then all of a sudden this kicks that stuff up. So, I mean, other than it just going through CIA lawyers and administration lawyers, you know, there was no, I mean, other than Pompeo's public kind of bellicose pronouncement on the subject, we didn't really have any sense at the time about how deep this went and what it actually meant. So a couple of points. First of all, uh, as you were sort of going through the Obama era interest in rebranding Greenwald and Poitras uh, as information brokers, the political blowback from that. You know, let's just remember, it was Glenn Greenwald with the very first Snowden revelation, the fact that the NSA was collecting the phone records of every American citizen, made a liar out of the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, who had just recently told Congress that the uh, intelligence community wasn't collecting anything on American citizens. The question was asked by Senator Ron Wyden, who knew what was being done to give Clapper a chance to confirm it or not, and he lied, and he's admitted he lied on the spot. Um, so the idea that the U.S. intelligence community would have then gone after the journalist who exposed him to be a liar, um, I think would not have gone down well in, in, in many circles. But that said, I want to return to what the CIA was actually doing, because you mentioned the audio and visual surveillance of Assange from inside the Ecuadorian embassy. This is something his lawyers are very focused on, because that would have included communications Assange was having with his lawyers, with his doctors, all sorts of things that are supposed to be privileged. And um, some of this had come up before in a Spanish court case about a company called UC Global that had been hired by the Ecuadorians to provide security inside the embassy and then apparently was turned by the CIA. So tell us about what we know about the role of UC Global and how that fits in to the CIA surveillance of Yeah, so a lot of this, you know, as you said, um, has uh, dribbled out through the Spanish court case. And some of this has been, was revealed in the Spanish newspaper El País. And what you had was this fairly marginal company called UC Global that was founded and run by a man named David Morales, who was a former Spanish special operations person. And he gets this contract to provide security for the Ecuadorian embassy in London. And, you know, according to some of these, these reports and uh, affidavits from two former UC Global employees, at some point, late 2016, but particularly after Donald Trump takes office in early 2017, UC Global is no longer working for the Ecuadorians. UC Global employees are now being told, in fact, that they are 
they're still drawing a paycheck from the Ecuadorians. They're still, the Ecuadorians still believe that they're working with Ecuadorians, but they're actually working for CIA. And so what these employees claim is that these former employees claim is that at Morales' direction, they started bugging the entire embassy, audio and visual feeds. They put stickers on glass windows to allow for a greater um, spine from outside so they could try to, uh, you know, pinpoint his communications. And at some point, these former UC Global employees allege, uh, Morales told them that his American contacts said, we might need to kidnap Assange, uh, and we might also need to help poison him. So there was both extensive spying um, alleged by these former employees who say that their boss was working for CIA, and then also some allegations on their part that their boss was told that CIA was in fact considering kidnapping or poisoning Assange. So that would be that would seem to be confirmation of exactly what we're reporting, right? Yeah, precisely. I mean, and, and, I, and think- I should say, I think our story is the first sort of public confirmation from the U.S. side that some of what these uh, Spanish uh, witnesses have testified to, in fact, took place. That's precisely right, both on the kidnapping allegations, um, as well as the extensive spying on Assange um, within the embassy, and that the U.S. intelligence community had access to audio and visual capabilities within the embassy. Yeah. So we know that obviously uh, the U.S. didn't assassinate Assange or kidnap him or uh, kind of, you know, go ahead with some of these crazier options, but the, uh, the U.S. and the CIA clearly did do a lot about WikiLeaks. Has it succeeded? Is Wiki, where is WikiLeaks now? I mean, I think it has, actually. I mean, I think if you are U.S. counterintelligence officials, you are very pleased about where WikiLeaks is today versus where it was in the fall of 2016. I mean, Assange was basically neutralized from within the embassy. I mean, he slowly, you know, he, he slowly seemed to wither a little bit uh, in there. And um, his access to the outside world, obviously, was highly limited. And after Vault 7, WikiLeaks has been quite, has been very quiet, actually. And I think you could make a case that the offensive counterintelligence campaign succeeded to a large extent. There are also just changes in the way that information is circulated online that make it easier for these big dumps to circumvent organizations like WikiLeaks and just be released directly in a different forum. So you could also say that they've been made more obsolete as time has gone on, and that might have actually been a natural evolution for the organization. But I do think that the U.S. to an extent declared war on WikiLeaks and won. So, Zach, I do want to do take one more beat on the lawyers who we briefly talked about before, because, it, you know, it seems like the role of lawyers in national security issues, you know, going back some time, it's sort of a, a, a swinging of the pendulum back and forth. You know, we remember during the Bush era when there was this sense after 9-11 that the lawyers were too risk averse, that all of a sudden they were marginalized. They were left out of meetings. They were not consulted. They were not listened to. 
And then the pendulum swung back during the Obama administration, where you had teams of lawyers literally, you know, having to like studying, you know, the the legality of individual drone strikes and having to sign off on them, which took a lot of time. Uh, Then the sense was that the pendulum had swung back again uh, when Trump came into office. But this story reveals that the lawyers kind of held the line, uh, that they were in some ways uh, the, the guardrails. You talked about John Eisenberg. I think the general counsel at the CIA played an important role in all of this. Tell us what you learned about the role of lawyers um, in the Trump administration and what that says about their importance um, in national security decision Yeah, I mean, I think that they really were bulwarks here. And I think that on the one hand, it's a great relief to know that there are people at all levels of the national security bureaucracy kind of vertically integrated, basically, you know, from very low levels at CIA all the way up to the general counsel that care deeply about staying on the right side of things. And that goes for folks in at the National Security Council as well, and the Office of Legal Counsel, the Department of Justice. And this story is kind of like, uh, it's a success story in a lot of ways, where you had a young administration that was, I think it's fair to say by historical standards, particularly at that point, um, very chaotic, but where to some extent the system worked and you had the legal experts pumping the brakes over and over again about these very extreme things that were being proposed by a a very powerful CIA director and a president who was very unorthodox. You know, on the other hand, the fact that uh, it got that far at all is quite worrying. And the fact that you have these laws being interpreted, you know, interpreted in secret over time, like some kind of medieval priesthood, basically, I think is like very concerning and difficult for those of us who believe in greater accountability in this space. Yeah, you you actually talk in the story about CIA yeah. common law, which is not <laughs> really a phrase that I'd heard. Nor of uh, kind of most lawyers, yeah. Is there yeah. no reference to that in Blackstone's uh, treatises? Uh, exactly, yeah, it's the, yeah, sta- yeah, the, the right. statute of Queen Anne. Or yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you actually hear like this stuff gets passed down in secret by CIA lawyers over time. And some of this is literally like, can we find a precedent? Oh, check that safe. And there's like literally like a dusty folder from 1983 where a CIA lawyer wrote something that provides a precedential yeah. frame. Yeah, yeah, right. We broke the law back then, so I guess we can break, break <laughs> yeah, the law yeah. now. Or yeah. this isn't law breaking because one guy wrote this 30 years ago. Yeah. And, yeah. All right, but Zach, you you call this a success, but there's already indications that at least on the Assange side, they intend to use the information we've disclosed to bring it to the attention of the British courts to block the extradition, and even if it were to go through, to uh, file charges of government misconduct to tube the indictment of Assange. In fact, uh, Barry Pollack, who's the lawyer quoted in our piece, he's the U.S. lawyer for Assange, raised the comparison, the analogy of Daniel Ellsberg, who was indicted and facing trial for uh, leaking the Pentagon Papers, but when government misconduct uh, came uh, to light, especially the break-in to the uh, his psychiatrist's office by operatives from the Nixon White House, that was enough to get the charges thrown out. Now, 
What do we know about how the Assange folks plan to use the information we've disclosed in both the British court case and the uh, U.S. case? So, I mean, two things. I mean, I think it was a success insofar as, you know, these proposals that people thought would be blatantly illegal didn't end up being carried out. And so I think that was that's the success story there with the lawyers. I do think, though, that what you know, what what we heard uh, repeatedly from people who were aware of some of these discussions and even some of these pretty aggressive actions that were carried out in terms of these offensive counterintelligence disruptive actions, which was, look, you know, if you do a lot of this stuff, some of this is going to come out someday. It might come out in the discovery process and it might come out in the press, um, which it now has come out in the press. And if that happens, this could risk prosecution of Assange. So you had people at the time saying, if you do this, you might go down a road where you end up undermining the extradition and prosecution of this guy. And it's possible that that might be the case because you know if you go too far in one direction in these covert action type things, you know you you might undermine your own case. And that is that that may play out. And I I don't know what Assange's lawyers are going to do with this story. I mean I think that they will I. I my assumption was that they will they will bring this up because they said, look, this guy can't get fair treatment in the U.S. Right, right. And look, look, the argument would be to the British courts, where I think it would have the most traction, you know, you want to send the, our client back to a country whose government was thinking about assassinating him and kidnap and abducting him. Surely, you, you know, you wouldn't want to go through with that. So we'll see how that plays out. But I think it's it's inevitable that um, uh, these sorts of issues are going to get raised. I, I, just to close out here, I do want to say, and I'm sure this is going to piss some people off um, who are coming to our podcast today because uh, we've exposed all these things about Julian Assange and their Assange supporters. None of this is intended to whitewash some of the things Julian Assange has done. We do know, and I think the Mueller report is pretty conclusive on this, that he actively solicited and received the DNC emails from Russian intelligence. And, um, you know, I think the chain of custody of those emails is pretty well spelled out in the Mueller report. Assange asks for them from Guccifer 2.0, identified as, you know, Russian GRU operative or operatives. And um, there's an encrypted file that's sent to WikiLeaks from Guccifer 2.0. I also should point out that in the um, podcast series, the first Conspiracy Land podcast series, there was uh, quite a discussion of Julian Assange and the role he played in fanning the completely bogus Seth Rich conspiracy. Seth Rich was the former DNC worker who was shot on the streets of Washington in what was, you know, clearly at a botched street robbery. And Assange himself tried to suggest by posting an award for information about uh, Seth Rich that he may have been, he, Seth Rich, may have been the source for the DNC emails and not the Russian operatives. It was pure smoke that he was uh, throwing up to cover his tracks. And we shouldn't forget the role that Julian Assange played in all that. My final note on this is all the more reason that this stunning piece of reporting is important because it's important to, to expose this kind of conduct aimed at people who are controversial, 
um, yeah. and, and despised by a lot of people, whether you yeah. agree with those reasons or not. And this kind of, you know, fearless reporting, even if it's not going to be popular in some circles, um, is uh, critical. Um, and so, you know, it's just hats off to both of you guys and to Sean Naylor for this story, which really is a, uh, you know, one of the best pieces of intelligence reporting that I've ever read in my career. And also just a an amazing yarn. I mean, just a fantastic story. It's long and but well, well worth the read. I mean, just if we're getting on this, you know, the Assange, is he, is he a journalist? Is he not a journalist? I mean, I think part of the problem is that he's such a complicated, it's such a complicated edge case in certain ways. And he has done and behaved in ways that are distinctly unjournalistic. But WikiLeaks also, at least historically, has borne at least a very strong family resemblance to journalism, if not um, being a journalistic outlet itself, which is, of course, what Assange and his collaborators claim. And I just think it's important, it is important, as, as both of you mentioned, to really lay out the facts of the case and the things that he's done that both resemble journalism and things that he's done that, you know, for instance, the allegations of him conspiring to help uh, Chelsea Manning crack a classified computer network. And that's something that no mainstream American journalist would even dream of doing. Which is ultimately what he was charged with in the indictment, right? Yes, that was the first. And I mean, a lot of journalists, I think, were very concerned about the indictment of Assange. But when they saw that as the initial indictment, there was a little bit of uh, there was a, there was an understanding, at least, that the allegations of what he was doing were outside the bounds of established journalism. And then the superseding indictment went to the mere publication of classified information, which, of course, um, American news outlets do all the time, and is an, and basically without which would make national security reporting impossible. And so that was a, a grave concern to to many. Um, press advocates. And so, yeah, I just wanted to, to just underline the, the really good points there about, about Assange. And there are reasons why he is very, very unpopular and to some extent deservedly so. Um, but just because you, you detest certain things that the person has done does not mean that that person deserves to be considered for kidnapping or assassination. It's kind so. of a bed, bedrock principle of American law, right? <laughs> yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Zach Dorfman, I want to thank you for sharing your insights onto this. It was great working with you on this piece and with Sean and with our editor, Sharon Weinberger, who had to put up with all three of us uh, yes. in the writing Sharon. of this. Uh, that was yeah. She, she, had, the, she had the true crucible uh, yeah. <laughs> of this. But uh, surely uh, there'll be more beats to come. So um, we will be staying in touch. Thank you all so much.